chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, continuing our series. Um, I always get nervous on days uh, leading up to when I get to preach when I know I'm going to be at a Husky game the day before because I'm deeply concerned that my idolatry will be exposed and you will, um, I will cheer so loudly and give so much worship on Saturday that I don't have any voice left for Sunday. So thankfully, um, with the team losing 48 to nothing, I had nothing to cheer about the entire game. Uh, I don't even know that I clapped once. Um, so I got a voice. I'm ready to go. Um, and uh, I just am thankful that um, apparently God is, is not on the side of, of the Huskies, but we need to just be on his side. So, um, all right, like I said, we're in Joshua. We're still doing our series, The Lord's Army. If you're new here, we usually just preach right through books of the Bible. Uh, so we're at the end of chapter 5 here. And, uh, you know, when you're in the Old Testament and you're looking at just a few verses at a time, um, it can be very easy to think that these stand alone uh, and really just try to drill down and focus on them. But I, I really think it's important for us to understand that these few verses are part of a greater narrative of God redeeming his people from slavery and delivering them to a promised land. So uh, I want to make sure we kind of get caught up in the story for those of you that haven't been here for a while. So... Um, Way back in the book of Exodus, God uses a man named Moses to miraculously lead his people out of Egypt where they had been in slavery. Um, one of the miraculous things he does is to part the Red Sea so that um, Israel can escape uh, certain death of the pursuing Egyptian army. And so Israel is so grateful uh, to be delivered um, from certain death by God that they decide to reject worshiping the creator of the universe and create their own gods and serve them. So um, God gets a little ticked off and says, okay, that's it. None of you that worship this golden cow uh, are going to get to go to the promised land. So they're a little bummed out uh, to be sure. They spend the next 40 years wandering the desert before God finally allows them to move to the promised land. And so the book of Joshua starts. And Moses, uh, the leader of Israel, uh, has died, and the rest of that faithless generation is gone. God says, yep, it's now time to go in to the promised land. He commissions Joshua to lead Israel in this um, uh, new endeavor. And Joshua goes right away and says, hey, I remember when I went in as a spy to look at this uh, promised land uh, a generation ago. I'm going to go ahead and send in some spies to Jericho. We'll see um, you know, what their defenses are, try to start forming a battle plan. The spies go into Jericho. They're like, we're going to get caught. Let's go hide in a brothel and see if Julia Roberts can save us with the hooker of the heart of gold. Um, and so they, um, they get saved by, um, well, Rahab the prostitute. I'm just imagining she'd be played by Julia Roberts if this was a movie. Um, and then um, they come back and God rolls away the swelled Jordan River so that Israel can walk across dry land just as he had done for the generation previously. And then he tells Joshua to instruct Israel to set up um, a number of monuments so that they can remember all the amazing things that God has done for them and also so they can teach their children about God's faithfulness. Um, at that time... The men of Israel renew their covenant with God um, as his people through circumcision. And then everybody celebrates the Passover meal, um, remembering how God had delivered them from Egypt. And so the beginning of this book has kind of been focused on looking backward and, and remembering uh, the things that God has done for Israel. And now we're in this transition point where it's moving from reflecting on the things that God has done and what he's done to bring people out of slavery and out of wilderness to a point of transition where they get to move from thinking about the past to actually living out the future that they have been called to and living out God's will for their life. So at this point of transition where they're going from uh, remembering what they're saved from to living out what they're called to, um, Joshua is preparing for this battle in Jericho that will literally decide the fate of the nation of Israel that he's been entrusted to. And it's at that time that Joshua is met with kind of a curious visitor. And we're going to see that episode here. So... Like I said, if you have your Bibles, chapter 5, Joshua, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, 
And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, before we can unpack this episode verse by verse, um, we have to know who this visitor is to be able to understand the interaction between him and Joshua. And for most of us, I, I think it's easy, at least when, when I'm reading the Bible, um, to think that this was an angel sent by God. Um, throughout the Bible, throughout the uh, Old and New Testaments, you see that God often sends a messenger uh, to deliver news uh, to people. Um, but in this case, it's not an angel. The commander of the Lord's army is, is more than an angel because he instructs Joshua to give him the same honor that Moses gave God in Exodus 3 um, at the burning bush. So, um, And what's interesting about that is that, that Joshua calls him Lord, and he worships him. See, a created angel who's in the service of God would not accept worship from a man. An angel would say, no, I am not the uh, object of worship. I'm just a representative or a messenger of. You should direct your praise to God. Instead, this angel, sorry, instead, this is God, um, and we have to understand that. This is what theologians call a theophany which is literally uh, means an appearance of God. And it's where he takes on this visible form to show himself to a people or show himself to a person. And I think it's kind of a, an amazing thing to think about because it's this moment when an infinite, uh, omnipotent, omnipresent creator of the universe shows himself in a way that his small and finite creation can actually interact with. Um, and so... Um, this happens um, at several key points throughout Scripture, and, and God comes in various forms depending on the needs of the individual or the people or depending on the nature of the relationship uh, between God and the person or uh, depending on the circumstances. And so um, I want to kind of start back from the beginning of the Bible here and take a look at a few of these so we can understand how God uh, interacts with His people. In Genesis 3, verses 8, we see that God regularly took walks with Adam and Eve um, in the garden during the cool of the day. And, and that's, that's interesting because it shows the peace and the intimacy of what a perfect, unbroken relationship between God and man looks like. And uh, after man's disobedience, um, they were ashamed to, to walk with God when he came into the garden. And so um, God, uh, recognizing their rebellion, expelled them from the garden as a consequence of their sin. Well, later in Genesis, in Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham, who was this tent-dwelling nomad, uh, to tell him that his wife Sarah, who had been, uh, was 90 years old and who had been barren her whole life, would give birth to a son. And when he comes to Abraham, he comes as a traveler. And, and just my own commentary, I believe that this is showing that the path of redemption is going to be a long journey for God's people until they're finally home with the Father. And then later in Genesis 32, we see kind of this um, interesting ultimate fighter Jesus that shows up and kind of wrestles with Jacob and it, they kind of spend all night in this octagon just just battling it out and and God kind of humbles himself enough that he kind of lets Jacob think he's winning for the whole night until he just kind of boop, taps him on the the hip and, and Jacob just falls apart and taps out um, showing Jacob um, that uh, he needs to understand and respect uh, the power of God. And then, as we mentioned, Exodus 3, God speaks to Moses as a burning bush, showing the intensity and the passion that he has for the plight of his people as they are in the bondage and suffering of slavery. Later in Exodus, in, in chapter 14, God parts the Red Sea, um, and he appears as a pillar of smoke between his people and the oncoming army, showing that he's both ready to protect his people, and defend them and deliver them from the most powerful military that the world had seen at that point. 
Later, uh, as they're in the wilderness, God appears um, as a pillar of light to help guide his people. And then uh, at one point, um, God appears to Moses on the top of a mountain in all of his glory, where Moses can't even, can't even look directly at him. And, and, and Joshua w- was, was there for that. Joshua wasn't at the, the highest point of the mountain with Moses, but he wasn't down with um, the people of Israel who were in full rebellion worshiping the calf. He was kind of in the middle of the mountain, standing between a holy and just and glorious God and and a rebellious and broken and ungrateful people. That's kind of the role that Joshua is going to play for, the, for the, rest of the, uh, uh, the rest of the story here. So now, as Israel is finally at this point where they're ready to go into the promised land, and, and they're preparing for this, this battle that is going to launch this conquest um, uh, for, for this people, God appears um, to Joshua as this sword-wielding, Russell Crowe, gladiator, general guy. And, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of cool because really what we have to understand is um, this is really General Jesus. And we don't talk a lot about General Jesus, and there's not a lot of Sunday school songs about General Jesus. I might write some because I think it would be kind of fun. Um, but we have to understand that, that the person that Joshua is talking to is Jesus. And so we see at the beginning of the verse here, Uh, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. See, most of the time when I have studied the Old Testament, and I think a lot of us, if you've grown up in church, you've looked at the Old Testament and you've thought about Jesus' place in the Bible, you've probably thought of Jesus as someone that just kind of shows up at Christmas and and, kind of makes this brief 33-year cameo appearance in the, the whole narrative of Scripture. And, and so he's there for a while, he leaves, and then we're all waiting for him to come back. Um, and, and it's just kind of, like I said, a cameo appearance. But rather, we have to understand that all of the Scripture from Genesis to the end of Revelation um, is really um, about Jesus and that he is the central fi- figure of all of Scripture. And so we have to remind ourselves that there's not this um, uh, warrior God at the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament and then this kind of um, loving, pastoral, hippie, carpenter Jesus guy in the second half uh, and that they're two different people. We have to understand um, that there is one very consistent God throughout Scripture and yet a very complex God that has multiple layers that we need to unpack and be able to understand um, and so uh, God, throughout the Bible, when he appears as a man, he's a man named Jesus. Colossians um, 1.15 uh, says it this way, speaking of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. So when you see God appearing visibly at any point throughout the scripture as a man, that man is Jesus. Jesus is not a new creation that comes in at the, at the uh, New Testament uh, or, or some, some new way that God has thought of with interacting with his people. It's the way he's always been from the beginning of time. So we've got to wrap our heads around that this is Jesus. Well, the other thing I think that's hard for us to wrap our heads around is the idea of Jesus as a general. Because generals are strong and they're powerful and they lead battles. And, and we are so focused on Jesus. Uh, and most of how we've been taught about Jesus is as humble Galilean peasant, um, you know, gives pithy statements and, and gives people bread and fish and, and, and does miracles and all that. But we have to understand that, yes, there's Jesus coming in humility as, as shown in the Gospels, but there's also Jesus in his glory. And so here in the Old Testament, um, we see that Jesus self-identifies himself. The name he gives himself is commander of the army of the Lord. And the Hebrew word here doesn't only mean military officer, but also means prince or noble or leader of a royal clan. This is a royal title that he's coming with. He is the king coming to fight. He's not just a soldier. And then later, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 19, we see uh, that John has this revealed image of Jesus as a general on a white horse that on his leg is tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when you really look at the whole of Scripture, Jesus in glory is the rule, and humility is the exception to the rule. And so I don't want us to 
to diminish Jesus coming in humility, that really my hope is that in being able to see an image of Jesus in his glory, that we're able to appreciate him coming as a humble Galilean peasant even more so as we understand that um, when we look at the cross and you see the image of this humble carpenter being sent to the cross by, by the religious elite and by the Roman army, you know, I can wrap my head around that. Okay, he was not somebody um, that was revered in society. He was marginalized in that society, so, so they probably didn't place much value on him. It doesn't diminish what he did on the cross, but okay, distance from humility to cross doesn't seem quite as great as the distance, the actual distance of General King Jesus coming from a throne and casting away all of his powers and, and, and all of his authority um, as a general to willingly submit himself to death on the cross. So as, like I said, as we see Jesus in glory, it should deepen our appreciation of Christ humbling himself on our behalf. Well, as, as Jesus comes at this point in the story, at the beginning, more the beginning of, of the story of redemption, um, he appears to, uh, to Joshua, and he's not coming at this point as a sacrifice. That, that'll come in the New Testament. That'll come in the Gospels. Is, Israel's immediate need at this point isn't one of sacrifice. If Jesus showed up as a general and said, I'm ready to die right now, they'd be like, thanks, we kind of need some help with Jericho over here. Like, we could use some power and some, some help, but if you want to just die, that's, that's fine. Um, instead, he's not coming as a sacrifice. He's coming with what their need is, which is salvation. They need to be saved from their enemies. And General Jesus is ready for this battle. Bible commentator Matthew Henry says it this way, Christ has his sword drawn, which both encourages Joshua and shows he's ready for both the defense and the salvation of his people. He also says, to Abraham in his tent, uh, Jesus appeared as a traveler, and to Joshua in the field as a man of war. He says, Christ will be to his people what their faith expects and desires. Well, I'm not a official Bible commentator, but I kind of have to disagree with Henry's last sentence here, that, that Christ will appear in the way that people expect or the way that they desire. Because, um, honestly, I think that Christ, Christ will be to his people what Christ knows they need, which is quite often not what we desire, and certainly is, is not often what we expect to have happen. So, as individuals um, and as a people, we can get into trouble when we approach God with our own expectations and with our own desires. And so the next part of the, the passage here, Joshua kind of gets himself into a little bit of trouble. It says, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Well, when we encounter God, we come with this man-centric, self-centered point of view rather than a god centered or God-centric one. And because we start from this perspective of ourselves being the center of the whole universe, we draw distinctions that suit our desires and our needs and our preferences. And, and those are really very often different, excuse me, than the distinctions that God draws. By coming in with these false worldviews and our own expectations, it causes us to have these wrong assumptions, which leads us to ask the wrong questions of God. We don't even interact with God from a point of being able to, to speak the same language because we look at the world so differently. He comes to God and he says, are you on my side or are you, are you against us? Are you against me? And we do that as well. We, we have our own agenda and we submit that agenda to God. And if God doesn't agree with our agenda, then we just assume, okay, well, God's not on our side. Or, or, or we submit those agendas to the people around us. You have to look at the world the same way I look at the world. And if you don't, we're not on the same team. And you clearly don't agree with me. And, and very likely, you're wrong. Because I know I'm right. We do this all the time. We're, we're very confident about what we believe and about the way we see things. And we usually can, can pick out and figure out how other people think and, 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 and see things. And, and so when we do that, we just discriminate and say, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to draw this line on the sand, and I know that you're on the other side, and that other side's the wrong side. 
Because we don't even consider the idea that maybe our way of looking at things uh, might, be, might be flawed. And so in that way, I think that um, really we're a lot like cable news pundits, right? Like, like when I watch Fox News or I watch MSNBC, you get a guy like Sean Hannity and, and he'll get some liberal guest on and he'll be like, why do you hate America? Why do you hate freedom? And the guy's like, I don't hate America, I live here, and I like freedom. And, he, and they, they struggle, and then you get a guy like, you know, like a Chris Matthews, and he's like, you know, why are you such a racist and don't like Obama? It's like, well, okay, I, I, you know, they struggle, they're tongue-tied. I watch these shows, and I'm like, you know, these people don't know how to answer because they can't even, they can't even communicate because uh, in order to even answer that question, they'd have to accept a false premise that the way that they look at the world is, um, is the way things are. And, and I think that, man, we're at a point now, we're, what, two days away, maybe less than 48 hours away from our entire country going temporarily insane for at least, I don't know, the next, at least the next day, but probably the next six to eight weeks, right? We're going to have an election, and everybody's going to be, you know, half the people are going to be super excited, and half the people are going to be really, really ticked off. And they're going to assume that, man, half the country hates America, or half the country doesn't love America, or doesn't, doesn't love each other, or they're just all idiots. And we all come with these preconceived notions where my way of looking at things is the right way. And so, man, if, if we vote in one way or vote in another way, you're not on my side. And then we try to kind of promote and say, well, God must be on our side. So whatever our political agenda is or our social agenda is or our individual agendas are, we just assume that God's on our side with them. And anybody that's opposed to them must be opposed to God. And what we're doing is we're putting God in a box. We're ignoring the distinctions he makes, and we're just creating our own and saying God has to be in this box. God has to be put in a corner. Well, if Patrick Swayze can say nobody puts baby in a corner, we probably shouldn't put God in a corner either. So, you know, Joshua tries to do that. He tries to put God in a corner. Um, gosh, uh, and, and, and I love God's response. He said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. I was talking to Jim uh, before the, the service here, and he knew what verses I was preaching on, and he's like, wouldn't it be awesome if we just started answering our wives like that when they talk to us? Wouldn't that go great? Um, honey, uh, would you like to uh, put the kids to bed or would you like to do the dishes? No. The commander of the army of the house is here and now I have come. You know, it just wouldn't go very well. You, you know, I mean, if you don't have a wife or you don't have kids, just try it at work. You know, your boss, you know, you want to do this, you want to do that? No. The commander of the office is here. Now I have come. And, and I, I love that. That's great. And, and what you see is in his answer, you know, Joshua's saying, are you for Israel? Are you for me? Are you on my side or are you for the enemy? And his answer is no. Well, no means, as difficult as it sounds, God is not on our side. God is not on Joshua's side. He's not on Israel's side. And, you know, that doesn't get put on, on a lot of bumper stickers or coffee mugs. We don't do a lot of evangelistic outreach. Come to Damascus Road Church. God's not on your side. You know, we don't do that because it's such a difficult and, and terrifying thought for us to consider. How could God not be on my side? I'm awesome. I mean, that's honestly the way I, I've looked at most of the world most of my life is, well, of course God is on, on my side. And the problem is God is not on man's side. God is on God's side. He's on his side first. Anything less would just be insane for God to be on anyone else's side but his own. And it may seem like a semantics of, you know, his side, my side, but it's a very important distinction. Because for those of us that have been Christians for any extended period of time and have walked with, with, with God faithfully, I'll just speak from my, my own perspective. It's very easy to be comfortable with the idea that God is on my side. It's very comforting. It's very easy to think about because um, I can remember that God has freed me from the slavery of sin in certain aspects of my life. I can remember the times where God has pulled me out of trials uh, and, and out, of, out of issues and, and has helped me and changed me and shaped me. And it would be very easy for me to think the longer and longer I go as a Christian... Well, it must be, there must be something about me. 
God must be on my side because he's done all these things for me in the past in my life. I'm sure that he will follow me and bless me in whatever path I choose to, to go moving forward. And, and, and that's scary because, um, you know, we take verses like Romans 8.31, which is a coffee cup verse for the most of the time. You know, if God is for us, who could be against us? Right, this is Tim Tebow on, on his uh, on his little uh, uh, you know um, marks there right before his game. You know, if God is for Florida, how can He be against us? You know, it's it's the verse we like, but we assume that whatever path we choose, that God will kind of be there as this co-pilot slash genie that that will follow us wherever we want to go, and then bless us in, in whatever way that, that that we think is is important. And we forget that God is for us. Sorry, we forget that at the beginning of that verse it is a little two-letter word, if. It says, if God is for us, if God is for us, he's only for us as much as our lives are conformed to his will. We can't just assume that God is on our side. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He's not a private mercenary that, that saves us when we want to be saved or get ourselves into a jam and then serves us when we have some kingdom we want to conquer. He, he's not a private mercenary. When God has done amazing things in our lives, I think we can get complacent and begin to act like we have this blank check of His grace to continually making withdrawals from for blessing and favor. And, and we stop thinking about and seeking His will and His desire. We just start thinking um, of, for our own desires. So we, we forget that we're in his debt. He's not in ours. For me personally, you know, the last um, few months, I, I've gotten to experience God blessing me and my family in, in, in some pretty amazing ways. We had, uh, as most of you know, a very difficult pregnancy with our daughter, Sila, but she was born and, and she's, she's healthy and she's happy and my wife has, has finally recovered so, so we can start to experience some, some joy with the new baby and, and in, in the worst economy I've seen in, in my lifetime, uh, I had an opportunity to move from, from a, a pretty good work situation to an even better work situation um, here in the last week with, with getting a new job. Um, it's, it's a blessing for our family. And then we're kind of in the final stages of, of getting to um, purchase a home that is um, uh, different than, and better in some ways than anything we could have imagined that we th would have thought we would have had an opportunity for. It'd be really, really easy to think, gosh, God has been blessing me so much lately. I'm on a roll. Like, I must be doing really well. I must be really obedient. And my life must be looking really good. And so I got some capital now that I can kind of do things however I want. I'm sure God will just kind of keep, keep blessings coming. And yet, really, if I'm not serving to God's glory in my new job, it's not going to go well for me. If I... If I put everything into my daughter and, and, and hope that, that my life will be fulfilled uh, because of how she turns out, I'm going to be disappointed. If I, if I look at this house from a place of idolatry as, as opposed to just a place of gratitude, uh, things are not going to go well for me. God's not in my debt. I'm, I'm in his debt. And, and back to our story with, with if anyone could assume that God's on their side, it'd be Joshua and Israel. I mean, they've had all these visible and tangible evidences and experiences of God doing amazing things for them that he must unquestionably be on their side. And yet, when, when God responds to Joshua asking, are you on our side? Are you on my side? He doesn't say, Joshua, I'm on the side of Israel because of her great righteousness, and I oppose Jericho because of her wickedness. So let me accompany you into battle to make sure you win, and then at that point you can do whatever you like, and I'll make sure to continue blessing you. See, I, I like that Jesus doesn't answer the question Joshua asks. He answers the question Joshua should have asked. Are you the Lord? What is your side? What, am I on your side? And then Jesus' response, he's making it clear that he's not there to follow Joshua and he's not even there to guarantee victory for Israel. If Joshua and Israel want to remain on the victorious side and, and, and join in the victory that's, that's about to happen, they're going to need to enlist in the army of the Lord. 
and they're going to need to obey and take orders from General Jesus, not the other way around. And here's Joshua's response. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? See, Joshua, by this point in the story, is, is this, he's a military leader, he's a civil leader, he's a spiritual leader for the nation of Israel. He has an illustrious resume that if I were in Joshua's case, I know I would become pretty proud of my position. I'd be proud of my past. And I know I'd probably, um, when Jesus says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, I'd probably start giving him his, my resume of all the great things that I've done and partnered with him on before. That Hey, if we partner together on this, I, I think it could still go pretty well. And I'd probably start um, you know, trying to uh, explain why I should be the one that's leading the battle. But thankfully, Joshua's a little bit better than I am. And when Joshua is confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, he responds correctly in the only way you can respond, and that's with worship. And so he doesn't vigorously, um, he doesn't vigorously hold on to his faulty assumptions or worldviews. Oh, that's amazing. Joshua comes in in this, in this brief episode with this idea that God's on his side and there's, there's a good side and a bad side. And as soon as he meets Jesus, he changes the way he looks at the world and just responds in worship. Now, for us, whether we're um, a, a, not a believer at all or a new Christian or, or even a Christian that's growing and maturing, when we're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, with the truth of who we are in relationship to Jesus, when we're confronted with the truth of God's word and what it says about how we should live our lives, we hold on so tightly to the way we've always looked at the world. We don't want to let it go. And, and Joshua, he quickly casts aside his worldview and rightly understands that the relationship between him and God is one of servant and of, and of Lord. See, for me, I, for, for the first probably 25 years of my life, I had a worldview... Uh, 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 you know, particularly in, in politics, of, of merit-based righteousness, if you will. Well, poor people must be poor because they're not smart or didn't try hard. And rich people must be rich because they tried really, really hard and worked hard and, and are much better than, than other people. And so I, I, I kind of bought into this uh, framework of understanding even Christianity of, of well, if if you're on Jesus' side, then you're probably on Rush Limbaugh's side, and you're probably on America's side, and you're probably on, um, you know, on the Republican Party's side. And so, I mean, at, at you know, age eight, you know, I'm pr pr practically a card-carrying Republican, um, which I was a geek, too, so there was always that aspect of it, right? You know, what eight-year-old actually cares about politics? But, um, you know, and, and so, so it wasn't until about four or five years ago I mean, I was a guy, I'd have bumper stickers on my car. The only fight I got into in all of high school and middle school where I got sent to a principal's office was over progressive versus regressive tax system. Like, like, seriously, like, they did not know what to do with me and my friends. They just had a fist fight over the tax code, and they're 12. Um, like, they had no idea what to do with us. And so, I mean, that's the way I looked at the world. I was so passionate about that. And then, and then I get to about age 25, and I moved to Texas, and I think, oh, man, I'm so glad to get out of liberal Seattle. I'm going to get to live in the hotbed of conservative politics. And I get to Texas, and I'm like, I'm going to join a church, and, oh, we'll all be on God's side, and I can't wait for uh, Jesus to help lead America into the next, you know, great generation or whatever. And, and, man, I started to read the gospel and understand that my allegiance wasn't to America or to a party or to an ideology, but that as a Christian, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God first, and that when I'm here in America or when I'm engaging in, in politics, I'm doing so as an ambassador that loves and cares about where I live and cares about the people here. But that ultimately I realized that my allegiance is to God and to his kingdom. And it changed the way I looked at the world. And so, I mean, like I said, you know, our country's about to go crazy here in a couple of days. And, and, and people will be like, you know, I, I could just imagine... You know, are, are you for Obama or are you for Palin? You know, and, and, and I know God's answer is no. <laughs> you know, 
that y'all need to just get in line and follow me. And, and of course, I guess God says y'all because he's probably from Texas too. So uh, <laughs> sure that's the way that works. But we have to understand um, that, that that's just not the way God sees the world. And so I, I love that Joshua here, when he's confronted with who Jesus is, he doesn't try to give Jesus orders like he's the superior. And he doesn't try to partner with Jesus as if he's a peer. But he humbles himself before God. And he eagerly seeks instruction, ready to carry out whatever Jesus commands. So I have to ask you, when was the last time you let God and Jesus and Scripture change the way you view the world? What's your pet issue that you hold on to that no matter what the Bible says or, or, or whatever you hear preached or taught or whatever um, you hear God's instruction is um, that you hold on to regardless and, and won't let go of? We all have something. Like I said, for me it was politics. It might be something different for you. It might be something more personal. But, but what are you holding on to that you're not changing? And also, when was the last time, like Joshua, that you sought God's instruction? And, and prepared yourself to carry out whatever his response was. I know for me, my prayers, for the most part, are pretty selfish. I'm usually giving instructions to God when I'm praying. Make Sila healthy. Give me this new job. Help the house work out. Like, I'm not usually, sadly, in a position of Joshua where I'm humbling myself and just saying, God, I've looked at the world wrong. Where do you want me to go with this? We need to do that. Jesus responds to Joshua in verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. So Jesus, in his response, he affirms that indeed there is a difference and a separation between himself and Joshua. That while he's come as a man to Joshua, and he, they're able to relate on one level, that he's able to carry on a conversation with him face to face, that he's still God. And God's holiness is something to still be taken seriously. We, we need to remind ourselves that while Jesus is relatable and we, can, we, we get to, to have a relationship with him, we can't lose focus of his holiness and his glory and understand that there, there is a difference between him and us. Jesus is also reassuring Joshua that he is the same unchanging God that spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that spoke to his boss, Moses, the, um, a generation before. We see that, I mean, he says almost the same thing in Exodus 3, verses 5. He says to Moses, Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There's one God throughout the whole of Scripture, and Joshua is getting to interact with the same God that Moses did. He's in Moses' place, and he's being commissioned by General Jesus to lead Israel from the Promised Land. And that's a pretty difficult task, because there's this nomadic people going against all these fortified cities, and, and yet Joshua won't have to carry out the mission alone because Jesus is there in glory and he's there in power. And just like Moses had to humble himself and, and be obedient to what God said, Joshua is going to lead his people by first following Jesus. Here's Joshua's response. It just says, and Joshua did so. This passage ends with Joshua submitting in obedience to what God tells him. And this would be a really easy place for me to just wrap up and say, okay, let's look at Joshua as an example of obedience and that, that he was so obedient to what God did and what God said that he was willing to attack a fortified city with like a marching band and the cast of glee and still like come out on top. Like, Joshua is so obedient and so confident in God that he can do even something crazy like that. And, and I could just say the example is that we should be just as zealous and just as confident in God that should lead us to, to obedience. But the problem is 
that we see that Israel is, struggles to just follow Joshua's example. I mean, you'd think that Israel, they had Joshua as a leader. They saw all these amazing things happen. I'm sure that once they take the promised land, that they continue to obey God and that things go well and they try harder and they follow Joshua's example. So let's just go ahead and we'll skip ahead in the Bible a little bit here to Judges chapter 2 and just kind of see how this all shook out. Like I said, I'm, I'm sure it goes well because they were following Joshua. So this is uh, the point now, Joshua chapter 2 verses 10, um, where uh, Joshua's died. You got the next generation comes up. Like I said, they, they made these monuments. I'm sure that, that everything went well. And that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that, that he had done for Israel. Okay, so they apparently didn't pay attention to the um, memorials. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served uh, the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods, and among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them provoked the Lord to anger. Wow. So, if the story just ended there, and we said, okay, Joshua was obedient, and things went well. If we're obedient, things will go well for us. Israel became disobedient, and it didn't go well for them, and God was angry. Um, the problem with that is, is that that's just religion. Try harder. God will be happy. Don't do so well. God will be mad. And, and it didn't work for Israel. And if you've ever tried it, it doesn't work for you. It didn't work for me. Trying hard never got me anywhere. See, religion is not the gospel. The gospel is distinct from religion. Religion, like I said, tells you, try harder, do better, please God, Fail, God's angry, wrath is coming. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not good news because it doesn't work. The Bible is not about people being obedient to God and meriting his favor. The Bible is about God who is faithful to his people despite their faithlessness. Paul, in talking about what Jesus did on the cross for his people, said, but God, in Romans 5, 8, that's my tattoo verse, by the way. Um, he says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that Jesus, as a general, even with his army rebelling against him, lays his life down for his people despite their continued disobedience, their idolatry and their rebellion. Jesus is the general that fights in our place. That he takes our defeat on the cross. That, that's how our battle ends. Our battle ends by ourselves in defeat as sinners before a holy and just God on the cross. And Jesus takes that defeat and owns it. And then he rises again so that we can share in his victory. We experience victory in our lives, not through our obedience, but because Christ is victorious on our behalf. The Sunday school song is wrong. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Jesus fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. We have to remember who's fighting battle and who's winning the battle because with ourselves fighting alone there is no hope for us to remain faithful to God and to live out the life that he's called us to if we're on our own see alone we will falter and will be defeated every time I see this with Christians who who just try to fight and struggle with their lives with without being part of the gospel community they don't engage with anyone else they don't share their struggles with anyone else they fight alone and they get defeated. And I'm thankful that just as Joshua wasn't left alone to fight the battle of Jericho, that we're not left alone to fight the battle either. After Jesus dies on the cross 
and, and is raised in victory and, and, and is ascending into heaven, he talks to his disciples and says, okay, I've brought you from the slavery of sin. I've brought you through the wilderness. And now you are at that point of transition that Israel is at. You're at the point where you're going to stop living and reflecting on just the slavery and the wildernesses you've been in. And you're going to move on to the point of being part of the mission that I've sent you on. And so here we are in Matthew 28, um, verses uh, 20, sorry, 18 through 20, the great commission that we've been given. It's not Joshua's commission, it's, it's ours. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That general who had his sword drawn, ready to go to battle for Joshua, is still with us. With all of his power and all of his authority, we serve the same God that Joshua did. And Joshua enlisted in the Lord's army. He was commissioned by General Jesus to go, to go be about the conquest of Jericho. If you're a Christian, you have to understand you've enlisted in the Lord's army. And he doesn't give you a sword to go fight a battle, but we're commissioned to go into the world and make the world the promised land by making disciples of all nations, maybe even our neighbors. And we can go about this mission with confidence, knowing that we're not doing it alone. That Jesus is the one there with all power and authority. The battle's not decided by how well you or I carry out the instructions. The battle's decided by who our general is, and it's Jesus. And there's confidence in that, knowing that we're going to win. Why do we act like we're going to lose? We get to be part of the victorious side, and if you're not a Christian, if you've never met Jesus as general or as Galilean peasant, you're fighting all of your battles alone. There's no power there in you. My fear is, is, is maybe not even for those of you that are, aren't Christians that, that are fighting these battles by yourself. My fear is for those of you that think you're experiencing victory because your life's going well. So you think it's you that's doing it. And like I said, we're all going to come to the cross at the end. We all get defeated. We don't win the war. We all die. Our lives end. And those who are enlisted with Jesus as their general get to rise and get to have a new life because of his victory. Because he took our defeat on the cross. And so if you're not a Christian, I beg you to humble yourself before General Jesus, and to take off your sandals, take off your preconceived notions of who he is, your preconceived notions of who, um, who you are, and respond humbly, laying everything in your life at the foot of the cross, and recognize that you need God's grace in your life. And I pray that you would humbly submit to Jesus, that you'd worship Jesus, that you would seek his instruction for your life. And then like Joshua, you would get up and be prepared to fight the battle of your life, knowing that you are guaranteed victory because of who your general is. We all have battles. We all need to fight. But we need to fight serving the right general. I'm going to pray seeking God's will for our lives and, and His instruction. And we're going to get up and we're going to sing. And we're going to sing songs of battle and of victory in who our God and who our general is. And we're going to give our tithes and offerings, understanding that as enlisted soldiers, every aspect of our life, our time, our money, our energy, and our hearts is to be used for the glory of our King and of our general. And... We're going to come up and we're going to take communion. 
remembering that that general and that king came down from his throne, came down from his white horse, came down from his tank, and laid his life on the cross and had his body broken on our our behalf, and had his blood shed, taking our defeat so that we can experience his victory in the resurrection. Pray with me. Father God, General Jesus, I thank you that my words today are not my words, but that if they have an impact on anybody's hearts today, it's because of your power and your authority and who you are. I thank you that the time um, and energy spent preparing a sermon and preparing a worship service does not dictate the outcome of how it affects people's lives, but that who you are and the power of your Holy Spirit is, is all that's able to change people's hearts. Lord, I pray for those of us that are Christians that we would remember that you're not automatically on our side, but that because we enlist in your army, we're to be on your side and follow your will. Lord, I pray for those that have never met Jesus or have never responded to him as general and as Lord and as Savior and as friend would meet Jesus today in as real and as tangible a way as Joshua met you as a general on the battlefield outside of Jericho. Lord, it's by your shed blood that we can even come to you in prayer and be in relationship with you. And Jesus, it's in your beautiful name that we pray this morning. Amen. All right, we close this morning with Paul in Philippians 2, talking about General Jesus humbling himself and our response. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go and serve General Jesus. Amen.